Lord, by your spirit, would you help us to see truth? Lord, before we, without your spirit, we wouldn't be able to see anything. So pour out your spirit here as we look upon these pages. Show us Christ. Help us apply what we see in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have a lot to make our way through this morning. So if you're with us, well, I had, I had it, I had it up here, but if you're with us, we're reading um, Let Not Your Hearts Be Troubled by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And um, even though we're only in the text that that, that book unpacks, that Lloyd-Jones, un, Lloyd-Jones unpacks for one Sunday, namely this morning, we're going to be reading this together for the next like, eight Sundays, okay? So we have this reading plan that's going to take us through eight parts. Why is that? Why are we preaching through this text in one Sunday, but then doing an in-depth study in this text for eight Sundays, okay, uh, eight weeks together? Well, let me give you three primary reasons. There's Practical study reasons, pastoral care reasons, and really primary meaning and application reasons. So first, pastoral study or practical study reasons, while we're only in these 14 verses today in terms of the preaching, they're so central to the text that we're going to keep coming back to them. And they actually refer back to everything that Jesus has already said. So we're, it's kind of this hinge passage. It's the beginning of what's known as this farewell discourse that we really started last week. And so in this, Jesus makes a central claim to Christianity, really the central claim to our faith. So we're going to keep coming back to it, all right? And, and I think it's important that then we continue to read together to keep it at the forefront of our minds. Also, you guys, look, in terms of this practical study thing, I divided up this passage differently so many times this week because I was like, there's no way I'm getting through all 14 verses and saying everything that needs to be said. And even this morning, I, I told somebody, I said, I think I'm only going to go through verse 11. You know, like, I'm making notes, I'm crossing stuff out. I think I'm only going to go through verse 11. No, no, we're, we're going through this whole thing, okay? But there's a lot that's left on the cutting room floor. So it's going to be useful for us to be going in depth in Martin Lloyd-Jones in, in the weeks to come, uh, right? Because we can't address everything. So there's practical study reasons, and that's important because... There's also pastoral care reasons, and as we do practical study, we don't do it, we don't do practical study for practical study's sake, you know? We do it to apply it. And the reality is, we're all dealing with troubled hearts in various ways this side of eternity. I spend, I spend a lot of time during the week, pastoral care, counseling, meeting with people, and I know that so many of us in this room are dealing with weighty and heavy realities, myself included, you know? The, There are difficulties in life. Our hearts are troubled. And so the key question we need to address is, how do we apply the good news of Jesus to our troubled hearts? And what does that look like? Lloyd-Jones is going to help us with that. And that leads us thirdly, you know, there's practical study, pastoral care, but neither one of those can really be done well if we don't get to the primary meaning and application. It's really important. You know, the, the reality is we tend to miss gospel growth. And last week we talked about what do we mean at Gospel Life when we talk about gospel growth, when we talk about discipleship in, in the gospel. I would really encourage you, if you haven't had the chance, go back and listen to last week because it gives the grounding not just of the gospel according to John, but it gives the grounding of Gospel Life Church's approach to disciple making. Right, so go back and listen to what I mean by gospel growth. But often we miss that gospel growth because the gospel has become so familiar It can almost lose its meaning and its application from within the Christian life, you know? We become so familiar, but we fail to become fluent. And and we do this, you know, we do this in life. We do this with the way we learn stuff, and I think that's that's partly what makes it such a disadvantage to us. Like I, all right, I, uh, I took three years of Spanish in high school and a year in college. And so, you know, I passed all my exams, which isn't, that's the point of college classes. It's to get information so that you can pass your exams, all right? No, it's not, but listen, um, it's three years of high school, a year in college, and you know what, what I gained during that time? A lot of familiarity with the Spanish language. In fact, to this day, if somebody comes up to me speaking Spanish, I do indeed know that it's Spanish, you know? <laughs> Like you're not going to pull one over on me and try and say you're speaking French. Too smart for that. Three years in high school, one year in college. All right, so look, I became familiar with Spanish 
I became familiar enough to pass the test. But it wasn't familiarity that led to fluency, which is really, that's the primary reason for studying a language. Well, the gospel's similar. A lot of us are familiar in that we can pass our, our test, our justification by faith alone and grace alone exam that we were talking about last week. But, it, but it's not the kind of familiarity that's brought about fluency. It's the kind of familiarity that's brought about forgetfulness. Like we think we can, we can and should move beyond it. Like done, done with that. I, I checked off the language credit at my local college. Done with that. Moving on to the next thing. Done with the gospel thing. That was the entry-level Christianity stuff. Now I'm ready for the 201, 301, 401 level classes, right? That's not how the gospel works, right? Um, and Lloyd-Jones really helps us see that from the very beginning. So in the first section of our reading from Let Not Your Hearts Be Troubled, he says, these words, what Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, are probably familiar to most of us. There are words, therefore, that we often tend to take without really facing them in their true meaning and without analyzing them as we should. We're content with some general effect or influence that they may produce upon us instead of taking the trouble to arrive at their exact meaning and their precise import. We've heard these words many times, but I wonder what would happen if we suddenly had to sit down with paper in front of us and face a question such as, state the doctrine contained in those familiar words. What exactly do they say? What exactly do they say? Listen, this is precisely the question that John 14 addresses for us. And that's because here we find the answer to the trouble with our hearts. We find the answer to the trouble with our hearts. Our hearts are troubled. You know, but we're not going to be able to, as Christians, figure out how to solve the issue of troubled hearts unless we realize the trouble with our hearts. Unless we see how our heart is centrally troubled we have a central trouble because of which Jesus came, and we're going to see that central trouble and its antidote unpacked in six parts of the text, beginning in the context. Verse 1, Jesus says, first part of verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. All right, so again, this is one of the reasons we decided to read, to take some time, hunker down in Lloyd-Jones' exposition of these verses to begin the year together at GLC because, you know, it's easy to begin the year with all this enthusiasm for what's to come and, you know, to ah, optimism for, for 2024. But a lot of us are ending 2023, and if we're honest, you know, you be, start to begin the next year with more trepida trepidation and fear than you do comfort and optimism because of things that were experienced the year before. That's a pretty common occurrence right? So you start this year with trepidation, you start with fear, but part of that is because you know, like, life's really difficult. Maybe you're kind of like waiting for the other shoe to drop or whatever you feel like that would be. Life's difficult. We have troubles this side of eternity. But it's in that context that I want you to know Jesus is merciful. Notice the grace of God that's so apparent in this text. In the context of the passage, what I mean is if you were to, I want you to imagine being in a room, being in a room with a person who knew that he was about to be sentenced to death and killed in agony in just a handful of hours. And you all knew that that was reality or you all had, a, had suspicions, had suspicions that that was the reality. But he knew it, you know. And so a group of that person's friends or family, you know, came around him. And yes, of course, like, that person's friends would need consoling too because their friend is about to be put to death. But in that situation, who would you expect, you know? Who would you expect to be at the center of the group's consolations? Who would be the one who you would perceive as being given most of the words of comfort and help and peace? You'd expect it to be the one facing death, Right? And yet Jesus turns all this on its head. You know, his disciples aren't the ones facing death in this moment. Jesus is. And yet here, just hours away from the cross, you know, like he says in chapter 12, now is my soul troubled. So Jesus is troubled. He's talked about his troubles in the cross. He's going to have that um, expressed again in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
He says, now is my soul troubled. He's troubled, and yet here, just hours from that great trouble, rather than being at the center of words of comfort and assurance, he gives comfort and assurance. Like, and in that way, it's almost like this microcosm of gospel, that Jesus, you know, he deserves life, but what does he take? Our death, like what we deserve. Jesus is on his way to death, so he, in some sense, we might think should be at the center of consolation, but instead, he turns on its head, on its head and he gives words of comfort and consolation in, in life, assurance to the disciples. They are at the center of his words of comfort. So again, he says in chapter 12, now is my soul troubled, but when he has this final moment, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Because listen, Jesus recognizes their troubled hearts. Jesus sees it all. He sees their confusion, their fear, their lack of faith and understanding. And in the hours to come, he'll see their shame, their hiding, their failures. The anticipation of Jesus in this moment isn't like, all right, we've had three years together. I've been taking you through all of these discipleship moments and points together. I've had extended time with you. My expectation of you is for success, discipleship success. He doesn't see, the, he, he doesn't anticipate that. His anticipation is for their failure. And yet, listen, Jesus doesn't abandon them in it. But he, he, in grace, he sets out to give them comfort, instruct them on how what he has come to do for them applies to this moment of trouble, you know? It applies to their troubled hearts. And the same is true for us. Pastorally, you know, we open this section and Jesus sees our troubles this year. Jesus sees our confusion, our fear, our lack of faith at times, our lack of understanding of how his gospel applies, our shame, our hiding, our failures. And he sets out to encourage and strengthen us in this text by giving comfort, by demonstrating how what he has come to do for us gives us life and peace in the midst of difficulty. So a lot of commentators, including Lloyd-Jones, if you read that first chapter, talk about how these words, let not your heart be troubled, hearts be troubled, they're appropriately and commonly read aloud at Christian funerals, you know? And again, it's appropriate. But let's remember, too, the original hearers of these words were actually simply disciples who were under enormous pressure, you know, as one commentator puts it, on the brink of catastrophic failure. And think about it from this perspective, too. You know, in, this, in the previous section, what do we hear? We heard Jesus telling Peter that he would fail. Flatly telling Peter, you're going to fail. You're going to deny me. That in the hours to come, Peter would not be able to be faithful in confessing Christ. And so, you, ha you have to think, what is Peter thinking now, you know, as the conversation moves forward? It's not like that was a separate narrative and now we're hours away from that into another narrative. This is a continued conversation. What's the weight of emotion in Peter's heart? But also, like, what are, what are the rest of the disciples thinking? You know, if this is true of Peter... They must be thinking, like, in part, some of them, if this is true of Peter, who's among the boldest of the disciples, someone who, like, kind of just throws himself out there, even when it's kind of disastrous, then what must be true of the rest of them? What must be true of the rest of us? And so, what does Jesus seek to apply? So, there, this moment of great trouble, the brink of catastrophic failure, What's, what's his solution? A new law, maybe. Telling them what to do. That would make sense. He knows they're about to like enter into a very real difficulty in obeying him. So it makes total sense for him to give them a list of things to do. Right? Work harder, you know? Does he say, come on, you guys, like, just work a little harder than this. Show me. I've been with you for three years. Show me that my efforts have not been in vain. You know, I've been with you for three years. Show me that you're faithful in the hours to come. Try harder. Don't succumb. Is that his approach? This is where we move from uh, the context that we've just seen. This context 
in which we see troubled hearts, troubled hearts, to now secondly the command. The command. Second part of verse 1 now. Rather than seeking to urge the disciples in their efforts to show him their efforts in the hours to come, giving them another law to follow, he makes this statement. Let not your hearts be troubled, and he follows it with, believe in God. Believe also in me. Right? Rather than a work to accomplish, they're instructed in faith and repentance. Repent and believe. Right? In the midst of, of, of your confusion, in the midst of your lack of faith and understanding and fear and failures, Jesus says, believe in me. If, if your faith is primarily rooted in yourself, of course you're going to fail. That's, that is his expectation. As he said to them last time, they simply do not have the ability to do the work he's going to do or to follow where he's going. But he does. They don't. But he does. See, the appeal here in this context is pretty obviously a shift away from self-reliance and toward a complete reliance on Jesus to do for them what they're unable to do for themselves. That's the whole concept. And the hours to come are going to bear that out. Look, it's interesting because <laughs> I debated whether to bring this up again, but it's, I think it's important. This is why we can't and shouldn't read the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as some blueprint of what discipleship looks like in the church. Like it's one-to-one, you know. Because look, what, what I mean is there's a lot of discipleship material out there that pastorally I'd really like you to be suspect of, skeptical of, okay? Specifically, it begins with a statement like, okay, um, we need to make disciples. And so in order to kind of unearth the strategy for disciple making, I've done a deep dive of the study of the life of Christ. You know? And so like, we hear that, and that's, how could you argue with that? It's a study of the life of Christ. But the idea is, so Jesus first, like look at the life of Christ. First he did these things with his disciples. And then next he does these things with his disciples. And then thirdly he does these things. And look at all this growth the disciples are experiencing. They're being set out on their own. They're learning these skills. And by the end, no, look, they've been with them for three years, you guys. And at the end, they are told that they will fail and that they shouldn't rely on their efforts because they haven't actually made the kind of progress in which they could stay faithful in the hours to come. Like the theme of John, to say nothing of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And really, you're like, look at Mark. Okay, well, let's stay in John. <laughs> it isn't discipleship success. The theme is, the theme is discipleship failure. And I don't mean, of course, the failure of Jesus to disciple them. That's not the point at all. It misses the whole reality. It's part of, like, I think our way of thinking that we can do something that we can't do, right? It's not the failure of Jesus to disciple us. It's the failure of the disciples to make progress in their own efforts, and Jesus is discipling them. How? By telling them they can't do it apart from his work. So think of it another way. I mean, it's the whole point. If the disciples could grow as disciples and become more faithful in their own strength and effort prior to the cross then what was the point of the cross? Jesus just stay there and start missional communities and disciple-making pods all across the world because we can just follow his example and grow as disciples. But the point is we couldn't until he went to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. What they need isn't faith in their efforts. What they need is faith in Jesus' efforts. And I call this so, okay, and yet the context to the command you know, I said Jesus isn't giving them a new law, but this is a command, you know. So I call it a command because as Lloyd-Jones points out, if you're reading the book, the verb believe is actually an imperative in both cases. There's some debate about that, but not much, okay, and we'll get into it. But Jesus is stating this as an imperative. An imperative is a command to follow, right? So he does give them a command to follow, but it's Listen, it's not a command to go and do something to save yourself. You know, it's a command to stop doing that. 
you know, to stop trying to save yourself, to rest in his graces, to rest in his mercies. I want to spend some time here because it might get confusing. If you've been at GLC for a while, you've probably heard us talking a lot in the past about how there are essentially two categories in the scriptures, right? And I'm not trying to oversimplify. Bear with me because we have limited amount of time to unpack it. Maybe sometime we'll do a Sunday evening gathering where we go over it with a little more detail. But two, essentially two categories, two sections, indicative and imperative. And again, not to oversimplify, for the sake of a quick summary, an indicative is essentially a statement of what's already true because it's already been done for us. It's been accomplished. It's, it's, been, it's been accomplished at some point in the past, Okay. So um, that's an indicative. It's a statement that's already true because it's already been done. An imperative is a command of what we need to do. So this, some people do think this is an, imper- uh, an indicative. You know, believe in God, believe also in me. If this were indicative, the way you would translate it, because, you know, it's a statement of what's already been done. If this verb is indicative, the way you would translate it is, you already believe in God. You already believe in me. That's how you would translate an indicative. You, are, you believe. Instead of saying believe, it's like you believe in God. You believe also in me. It's already occurred, okay? Um, and, and so the way, when, we, when we talk about indicative and imperative, we say often that the way the scriptures work is that imperatives are secondary and they flow out of the indicative. So what we're called to as Christians flows out of what Jesus has done for us. And that's because we can't actually make progress in the imperatives, the commands of Scripture, until we root ourselves firmly in the mercies or graces of God. Like We can't do one without that. We can't do that secondary imperative without the primary indicative. And that's true. So the normal pattern of the authors of Scripture um, is to address discipleship in the life of the church within the people of God by giving them gospel indicative first. So last year we were in Ephesians. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is indicative, indicative, indicative. It's all the statements about what has already been done for you. Jesus purchasing you, choosing you before the foundations of the earth. Then you get to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, so in light of all of that indicative, therefore, here's all the imperatives, all the commands of Scripture. Romans is very much like that, 1 through 11. A lot of indicative gospel. Chapter 12, verse 1 starts, therefore... You've heard me say it a million times, but listen, the Bible in this sense isn't so much, if you're here and you're like um, not a believer and you're trying to figure out what you think about the Bible, you might be coming in and, and, and understandably seeing the Bible as a list of rules to follow or not to follow. It's kind of Christianity's moral code. But I want to encourage you to see this morning that actually what we find here is the Bible isn't a list of rules to follow or not to follow primarily as much as it's a description of what it looks like if you really believe in the good news of Christ, if your life's been shaped by it, if the Spirit's revealed the truth of it to you. It's a description of like life living out gospel. Okay, so indicative leading to imperative. I say all of that because, there's, again, there's been some discussion as to whether or not these statements are indicative or imperative from Jesus here. So are they, believe in God, believe also in me, are these a statement of what's already been done or are they a command of what the disciples are called to do, and I would say it's definitely the second. I would say, for a lot of reasons, it's definitely the second. But not because the disciples are called to somehow do something for themselves, but because in this case, the command itself is a command away from self-reliance. So if, and this is one of these instances where it's a little backwards, because if it were in the indicative, it would be self-reliant, right? Um, For the disciples in this moment, prior to the cross, Right, so this verb translated in indicative would read like, again, you already trust in God, you already trust in me. In other words, let not your hearts be troubled because you've already been faithful. But not only is this grammatically suspect as a translation, in the hours to come, the disciples will not show themselves as those who already trust in God and in Jesus. Again, this is why he had to come. This is why he goes to the cross. You know, you might think I'm splitting hairs. I don't believe that's the case. So yes, it's a command, not a command to fill up your hands with stuff. And come before the Father and seek his approval. Not to fill up your hands in the midst of your troubles with saying all the right things. You know, like, when we experience trouble in the the context of the local church, there's enormous pressures to respond, like, rightly or appropriately within Christian subculture. You know, like, 
If you're going to have trouble, that's okay. Everybody has trouble. But you better say all the right theological things. You better maintain stoicism. Don't show too much emotion. I mean, there is a sense of this in the way, like, there are rules that we put on one another in the life of the church when we're going through difficulty. But Jesus does not do this here, right? It's not filling up your hands in the midst of your troubles with saying all the right things theologically, demonstrating how good you're doing in the midst of your trouble. It's a command to put all that down and trust entirely in Jesus because that's where the rest is found. It's not going to be found in your ability. That's what's going to drive you crazy. As it's been said before, so the idea is if you come to God with something that you think you've done, saying all the right things, doing all the right things, responding in the right ways, you get nothing. If you come to him with something, you get nothing. If you come to him with nothing other than what Jesus has done, you get everything, right? So you come to, come to God with something, you get nothing. Come to him with nothing, you get everything. Poor in spirit, a deep recognition of your need. That's what Jesus is commanding them toward. Put it down. In other words... We ask the question, how do you apply the good news of Jesus to the trouble in your hearts? But you can't apply the good news of Jesus to the trouble in your hearts until you realize the trouble with your hearts. Like the reality that you need him entirely, the reality that you're completely dependent, the reality that you're spiritually bankrupt. You need to come to him with that. And he's, he is merciful and he's good and he's faithful and he loves you and he pours out his grace to you and he satisfies and when we do that, we see, like, why, why was I striving? And so that's why this is a command. It's a very good command. And actually, we see that even more spelled out here because we go from the command, thirdly, to the covenant. Verses 2 through 4. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Do you see like the conditional, um, the conditional covenant language? If, then kind of language. But it's not if you. Jesus is saying, if I. So, so what's the condition of the covenant? It's not your work. It's Christ's work. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And guess what? I'm going to prepare a place for you. So I will come again. The covenant will be fulfilled because it's resting entirely on Jesus and not on you, not on me. And so we can trust it. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may, also, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Yes, Jesus is departing from them. He's leaving them, but he's leaving them for their good, you know? He's leaving them because he's extending to them a future hope, a covenant He's covenanting with them to trust him in the midst of this departure. He goes to prepare a place. He'll come and he'll get them because, that they might be where he is. We're reminded here, maybe as, as an illustration from Scripture, of, of how Peter, James, and John respond when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and he shows up in his glory. And their response is, let's just stay up here. Let's pitch a few tents. Let's stay up here as long as we can, right? And what is Jesus? So, so it reminds me of that in the sense that they want to stay on the mountain. But Jesus is saying, if we do that, we get no closer to the cross, which is what you actually need, you know, where you can truly experience my glory. Similarly, here the disciples long for Jesus just to stay with them. And actually, you know, I think first or second or third readers of the gospel, like if you're new to Christianity, your first reading through the gospels, you, you experience something similar. I mean, I remember as a kid when I could first kind of start to understand these gospel accounts as I was reading through it, I remember thinking like, wait, he's going to leave? Don't let him leave. I wouldn't want him to leave. You know? They longed for him to stay with them, but ironically that would undermine the covenant, the reality that he came to die. He came to die to secure for us a future hope, future life that changes everything, it transforms everything, you know? Stories abound of adoptive parents who, you know, they meet the child they want to adopt in an orphanage, whether it's stateside or overseas. But you really do see this um, in its more full sense uh, in terms of this illustration, in like an overseas setting. So like Ukraine, Russia, parents who go overseas, China, to this orphanage to meet the child that they're adopting. Now that adoptive parent, they could just stay in the orphanage forever. You know, it's common for the parent to go over, they travel, they meet the child in the orphanage, 
They meet the orphanage workers. They get a sense of, of how the, the child has been brought up up to this point, what they've had, all those kinds of things. But then the parent has to leave, you know. The parent has to leave. And that's hard on the child, right? Like, but it's good for the child. The parent has to leave. It's for the child's good because they'll return to bring them home again. They have to prepare the papers, the paperwork. They have to prepare the legal fees. They have to get everything in order. They have to prepare the place. And what's powerful about that analogy is that the child in this case doesn't really care about going to some mansion. They're not thinking about, not primarily, like they're not thinking about finding hope in riches out of poverty primarily. They're not. They're finding hope because they will now dwell with their parents, their mom and dad. They'll have a dwelling place with them, a new family, in a similar way. Man, we sure have some wonky ways of describing the hope that Jesus is talking about here. We have some wonky ways of describing heaven in Western Christian culture that I think is driven more by storytelling and myth than it is by the scriptures. And, and ironically, like, we tell these things because I think we think that they're going to help us but they're so less satisfying than the reality of it. And what I mean is like, kind of have this way of talking where it's like everybody gets their own mansion, their own keys to their golden Porsche or whatever, you know. Everyone gets their own suite in Jesus' mansion, a big, big yard where we can play football. I'm not trying to throw stones (laughs) at the newsboys. I just, I want to make sure we understand the hope of heaven is not found in the stuff we receive there from Jesus. The hope of heaven is Jesus. It's found in him. I mean, look at the text. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to the place? No! I will come again and take you to myself. Me. That where the place is, you may be also? That where the... the big, big house with many, many rooms and the big, big table with lots and lots of food is? No. I'll take you to where I am. To where I am, you may be also. John Piper's often repeated quote, and man, I knew I forgot a quote on the PowerPoint. Okay. Um, God is the gospel. In his book, God is the gospel. He, he, uh, he's helpful here. You've probably heard this before. And if not, That's okay. For your consideration, please just listen. I'll go slow. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends that you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? See, even when we read verses like this, there's a misplaced hope in the stuff that he offers. I go to prepare a place. And where does our culture, our, sometimes even Christian culture, take it? To the place, to the stuff. Oh, that place must be great. You know, so we, that's, we sing our songs about that. And that's what's happened throughout John. John's account, right? Give us the bread. Keep giving us this bread. Keep feeding us all the time. Give us this water that you keep talking about. Keep, keep uh, doing the miraculous bits. Loving Jesus for his stuff, but not Jesus as he reveals himself. But the true hope of the covenant is Jesus. Like, the true hope isn't the pl- just the place and the stuff. The true hope is him. Like Jesus himself who lovingly cares for us, who perfectly shepherds us, who longs to be with us for all eternity and who really does truly satisfy in ways that stuff could never even think to compete with. We don't understand that, but it's true. Like the true hope of the covenant is Christ. Those who have their lives changed in the gospel will now share his longing. So we'll see that at the end, right? So we share his longing. He longs to be with us. We will long to be with him, okay? Just as the child who's been adopted by loving parents primarily wants to dwell with them. That's what they're looking forward to. The reason the place is important is because of the parents. The hope of Christians, you know, the hope Christians have, the very center of the covenant is Christ himself. And the way, 
the way to where he goes, you know, Jesus says, and you know the way to where I'm going. It's the very center of the covenant. It's the cross. The way in which he secured the future hope. He can't just like, right here from the table, ascend to be with the Father and come on, let's go, because the the central problem of their heart still remains until he goes to the cross. So the very center of the covenant is this way. You know the way to where I'm going. The way he goes is the cross, but this is, there's a problem here. Because Thomas doesn't, he has confusion related to the cross. He doesn't see the need for it. So in verse 5, we see the counter to what Jesus is saying. Thomas kind of counters him here with a question. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? You know? We see a question here in Thomas's counter that we see often in the church today and in culture today. After all, Jesus concluded the last section saying, and you know the way to where I'm going. But Thomas is like, wait, no, I, I don't actually. So what's Jesus saying here? Well, the way to where Jesus is going, the way to our hope is found in the cross. And this counter is essentially confusion related to the cross. It fails to see. The problem with it is it it fails to see even after Jesus has said it again and again and again and again, you know, like over and over and over again that he would have to give his life up for his disciples, that he came in order to die. Thomas see some other thing as being central, some other reason that the Messiah must have come, right? And there's a very real manifestation of this in what the Western church today. It's like, this question, how can we know the way? How can we really know? There's all the shade that gets thrown on ideas like certainty and clarity, like, is the Bible really clear? Can we really be sure about the way that Jesus speaks? You know, all the shade that gets thrown on clarity and certainty in the scriptures, and yet Jesus, I think here, is like, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, you, you can know, and you can be sure, and I've communicated, and I'll, I'll continue to. But listen, it's far more condemning for the church today to, to, to approach the scriptures like that than it is for Thomas in this text, because for Thomas, I mean, look, it's before the cross. Jesus is essentially telling them that as they come back again and again to what they remember him telling them, to, to, to his teachings the Holy Spirit revealing truth to them, that as he appears to them as risen and telling them that all of this is about him, they will come to see and come to grips with the centrality of the cross. And Thomas does. Thomas does. And that it can be trusted. And we're going to see why it can be trusted. But instead we often like, and this is the, honest to goodness, it's the best explanation that I can think of for why we do what we do in contemporary Western Christianity in drifting this direction. I think we pretend not to know how to read because we don't like the implications of what we're reading. You know, and I think that's why, like, I I think progressive Christianity approaches the text and there is a sense in which all of the rules for interpretation, just interpretation generally, we just, that we use in everyday life, that we use to read books, novels, all kinds of, all the rules. When it comes to the Bible, we just throw those out. Like we pretend like we don't know how to read. And the reason for it is, I bet we'd know how to read pretty dang well if it said all the things that our culture agrees with. All of a sudden, we'd be able to read. But, but we don't, but not because it doesn't say the things, it's because we don't like what it says. And, and that's why what is almost always with predictable force what happens, what occurs in the lives, lives of progressive Christians who take the step of saying, like, how can we know the way? There's no certainty or clarity in the Bible. Like, you can interpret the Bible a million different In the end, they reject Christ and walk away from the faith entirely, and they say, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. Why? Because in the end, it's pretty hard to wrestle against what the Scripture's clearly saying. There's clarity in the Word, you know? And that's why Jesus moves from the counter to this claim, because, like, Jesus doesn't mince words. He's gracious, though. He's gracious. But he, he makes a claim that stands at the center of Christianity. And in that claim, there's no hedging. And there's no, like, Jesus isn't like, yeah, clarity, you know, uh, certainty. It's pretty tough. No, like, it does not lack certainty or clarity. Jesus, in his grace and mercy, says, look, if you're going to follow me, this is the reality. 
Okay, so he says, starting in verse 6, and this, by the way, is why you can trust the claims that he makes. This is why you can trust biblical clarity. So he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Do you see the terms in which Jesus is talking to Philip? It's not like he's leaving room here for some difference of interpretation. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You know, it's when we get through this section that we see the answer to Philip's concern or counter is found in this entire section and actually even in next week's text, not just verse 6, because in it Jesus explains even more what he means when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Like Thomas wants to know the way to the place that they might live and dwell. And Jesus is saying, it's me. Like, I am the way. I am the place. I am the life that you will have that begins now and goes on for all eternity. And another way to really think of it is, I am the way precisely because I am the truth. Like, I'm not speaking falsehoods. I'm not lying about this. I'm not making it up. I'm not mistaken. I'm not, you know, shooting off the hip. And therefore, I'm the only one who can offer you this life. What I say to you is true, and you can trust it. And and that has real implications for Christians. Because look, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's showing himself as, as, as the life giver. He's showing himself as the one who can actually transform life. But he's also showing himself as the one through whom now Christians will set out to live differently. Like, life in Christ looks different from life in the world. And we'll see that clear distinction in the chapters to come. Even in next week. Like, I think the next section... We also see it, but listen, here's an example, and I think it's a fitting one, given both the text and our cultural moment. This morning, we recognize together Sanctity of Life Sunday. So this is a Sunday in which Christians across churches in, in the West especially, but really around the world, are united in the historic position of the Orthodox Christian Church as it relates to the sanctity of human life, specifically the sanctity of life for those who are the most vulnerable, the sanctity of life for the unborn. And this is one of those moments in which it's important, like our, our bylaws at Gospel Life Church talk about how it's, the gospel creates a gospel-shaped counterculture, you know, that our, our church will demonstrate the ways in which the good news of Jesus really is counter from the culture around us. And, and I want to just say, can I preface my remarks on this by saying, like, I think it's a great tragedy that in the church today, and I get it, but we're often afraid to speak on this issue and issues like it that are vitally important in the surrounding world. Vitally important for so many because it's so tragic. Right? But the church is afraid to talk about it for fear of offense, I think, for fear of like not being nuanced enough. And I can tell you right now, I'm going to make some remarks that there are perhaps some who will find offense. And there are perhaps some who will say, well, that's not nuanced. But look at me, listen. If we only talk about things that we feel like we can be completely 100% nuanced about, we're not going to be able to talk about anything. Like, we need to be able to have a discussion about issues like this in which we can say things and then continue in the conversation, explain what we mean by them, talk through these things. It's really important. And the reason it's important in part is because there are many from within the church today who are silently suffering. And honestly, they're longing for the church to address this topic. And the church doesn't for fear of offending. 
And yet they're silently suffering because there's abortion in their, in their story. And my heart goes out to them because what do they want? They want God's grace and mercy. They want to know, can I have God's grace and mercy applied to me in the midst of this tragedy? There are many who come and they're, they're desiring to hear words of hope in the midst of having that as a part of their story. One in four women in our nation have abortion as a part of their story. And yet we're silent for fear of offense. And there are so many who suffer silently and I think needlessly as a result because we can say at the front end, like, how, how, let's root this in the gospel. How is Sanctity of Life Sunday important? How is it important for the church to stand for the most vulnerable and to declare life as belonging to God? Because while the culture says to the most vulnerable, you die that I might be empowered, Jesus says, I died that you might have life, that you might have what, you know, you die that I might be empowered, you know, and, and it's important to talk about this because the, the culture is lying, you know. Um, the whole concept of women empowerment in Western culture has been no friend to, no friend to women. It's been no friend to women, and the whole concept of empowerment through death has led to a continually, rampantly, out-of-control culture of death in which in, here in the state of Minnesota, we have the most aggressive abortion laws, extreme, as far, far as they'll go, in all the United States. How do we get there? How do we get there? Well, it's through a culture that says to the most vulnerable, right? It talks about the most vulnerable being important, but again, it's been no friend of the vulnerable. You die that I might be empowered. My empowerment comes at, comes at someone else's cost. But what does Jesus say? He says, I died that you might have life. And so in that call, what do we find? We find mercy and grace and love and forgiveness for those who have abortion in their story. There's life to be found in Christ. The mercies that he holds up. Remember? Do you remember the context to our troubled hearts? Do you remember the command? You can't do it apart from Christ. That applies to all of us. And so it's not like the church is standing up here high and mighty saying like, we're so much better and what's wrong with those who've messed up? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the gospel. We're all in need of it. And so of course it holds out forgiveness, but it also boldly holds out the sanctity of life. When Audrey was born, my fifth born child, you know, there's this story that I'll never forget. You know, um, we would read to her. We would talk to her. We did this with all of our kids. But there was this striking moment with Audrey where it's like, you know, I, some of those powerful moments as a as a parent has been seeing these ultrasounds, even from like very young, 12 weeks, little, little babies jumping around in mama's womb. Little babies like sucking their thumbs, can, like soothing themselves, you know, rocking with mama, sleeping with mama, sleeping when mommy's awake, right? Which is why when they're born, it's a wreck. You know, because they're all off kilter. But listen, because, because they're alive in the womb, that's why. Their sleep cycles are getting set in the womb. They're soothing in the womb. And Audrey, you know, we read to her like we did the others. She's born, you know, and she's just crying. She's just crying in the delivery room. And I come over, and you know, there, there's like three nurses, and they're doing all these things. She's under this heat lamp. And I just come over, and I said, Audrey. And just like, you know, these other nurses and doctors, they're talking too. But like a switch went off. She stops crying. She's like looking that direction and she turns, you know. She locks eyes as best as a few, few minutes old infant can with me and, and like just quiet. And the nurses immediately are like, oh, she recognizes your voice. Why? Because in the womb she was alive. Because in the womb she had life. Now she's vulnerable, the most vulnerable, but she has life. So we say both. We say like forgiveness, grace, mercy in the midst of abortion. There's forgiveness and grace and mercy for you to, to, to throw yourselves on the mercies of Christ the way that all of us need to. But 
But there is no doubt that abortion is one of the greatest injustices in all of human history. And we must stand for life because Jesus is the life. He's the author of life and he died that we might have life. And you know, listen to what the scriptures say because finally we'll just, we're not going to unpack it, but we see the conclusion. What does Jesus say about this? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. Here we see our, in, in, in this conclusion, we see that the desires of Jesus, what he claims, what he tells us, we now believe and we now trust in. Like his desires become our desires. And so his desire for us to uphold life becomes our desire in culture, right? We see in these last few verses we come out of line with the culture in which we live and into line with the gospel as he proclaims it. But in order for this to happen, we need, we need mercies. Life is difficult. Life gives us trouble, but Jesus holds out to us a gospel that's central for our good because he loves us and it applies to all of life, all of life. So we need his help to apply it. Pray with me. Lord, as we continue on in John, would you make your ever-present mercies known to us that we might call out to you, recognizing our sin, seeing, Lord, that our troubled hearts are primarily a result of the trouble with our hearts, which is that apart from you, we can't do it. So help us to put everything down, to come to you with full hands of faith, full of what Christ has done and not us. Hope in this future that you've given us in the gospel through the cross and help us to apply it to everything in Jesus' name. Amen.